the book of Mark, chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 26 through 50. Mark 14, 26 through 50. I believe in the Pew Bibles it's on 831. Let's hear the word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to greatly be distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd of, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come excuse me, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him and fled. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate that, brother. There are days that feel quite prayerless. Maybe you know what I mean. Or you pray and you have such a case of ADD with distraction. You can pray for five seconds and then be distracted for ten and then it's like you get, like, tra- that prayer is like being on a track that you get off and on, off and on. Or you pray half-heartedly. Or there's this, like, well-crafted prose, but no heart. Maybe even praying Scripture. Or praying selfishly with wrong motive. And you know this reality of not praying with the heart and mind of 
Christ. And so tonight as we are in this portion of Mark 14 in our second message on the passion of our Lord Jesus, I want us to see just two scenes of 12 in these final three chapters of Mark. We saw the first two scenes last week, the anointing by Mary of Bethany, and then the supper with the disciples. And tonight we'll see the prayer, verses 26 through 42, and then the betrayal and arrest of our Lord Jesus in those final eight verses. Our focus, though, and I'll spend the most time, is going to be here on the center section when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. First, I want us to see then three dimensions, three aspects of this section we call the prayer, verses 26 through 42. I want to encourage you to think of it as a scene. And we'll see Jesus foretelling, Jesus praying, and Jesus instructing. It's very obvious if you look at the text. First, he tells, our Lord Jesus foretells the response to Judas' betrayal and his arrest. You see it there in verses 26 through 31. And the scene here is at the Mount of Olives, just about a kilometer east, probably a 12 to minute, 12 to 15 minute walk a bit circuitously from the Temple Mount that at this point was some 50 years old. And the disciples have, away from the hustle and bustle of the city, landed there at the Mount of Olives. And this is what our Lord foretells. He says, first, all the disciples will fall away. It's not impersonal. He says, you read it, you will all fall away. And he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is foretelling. But Peter is the first and loudest in asserting his loyalty. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you're the type of person to be like, I double, I pinky promise this or that. I swear on my mother's grave. You do all these things when Jesus would simply have you say yes or no. And so he says, even though they all fall away, Lord, I will not. Literally, yet not I. And here's our Lord's first fear. Remember this, there's two fears that dominate this passage, and that's desertion. Do not forget that our Lord Jesus was the great God-man. Do not forget that in him were two natures in one person, the perfect marriage union of both the divine nature and the human nature. And we fail tonight if we forget his humanity and we're blind to his human nature. The Son of God, the Son of Man, possessed a human soul as surely as you and I, but without a hint of sin or fallenness. And kids, it's really helpful for you to think of this tonight. Don't forget this. When you read the Gospels and you read of the Lord Jesus, in the way you can touch your fingers and feel them, in the way you can look and see the wind blow and the leaves rustle, in the way that you could taste your mom or dad's favorite food, so the, in the way that you would feel 
as you could feel joy or fear, you could feel curiosity, you could experience curiosity or wonder, so our Lord Jesus, because he possessed a human soul. So Jesus was foretelling here the scene, and he's saying the disciples will all fall away. But second, he says, bold and confident Peter, you will deny me, not once, but three times before the rooster would crow twice in advance of the morning light. And you see Peter's emphatic denial. Notice how Mark makes the point of this, right? He says, he said emphatically, there in that second, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And see, Jesus uses this solemn language of oath with Peter as he foretells, he, he, he tells Peter that he will imminently deny his master, even while Peter is denying Jesus' words that he would deny him. And Peter says, in this basically denial of denial, it's where Jesus says, truly I say to you, even as he had said of Mary's anointing, in chapter 14, verse 9, even when he had spoke of the presence of a betrayer in the upper room, there in verse 18, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And the future expectation of that long wait until the day when Jesus would drink again of the fruit of the vine with his followers. This is a word of solemn oath from Jesus to Peter, verse 30. Truly I tell you this very night. So as we look at the scene called the prayer, we've seen Jesus foretelling, the disciples would all fall away in spite of their claim that they would not. Peter would deny the Lord three times before the cock would crow twice, even in spite of his absolute certainty that that was impossible. But now I want us to see Jesus as he prays in agony. Look in verse 32 through 36 here. And the scene scene shifts from a kilometer away at the Mount of Olives back towards Jerusalem in the hustle and bustle just 300 yards east of the Temple Mount at the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice this scene. They had left Jerusalem all the way to the Mount of Olives and now back to the Garden of Gethsemane. This movement then And they come into the garden, and Jesus' first concern is for his disciples. It's very simple instruction, like the way you would give to a first grader. Sit here while I pray. Like mom would say, right? Mommy's got to go get the mail. You stay inside the house, something like that. But more was meant. Luke says, records it this way. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. You know Jesus' words for the Lord's Prayer there was this final petition. And he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And what was was told to the disciples in general will now be pressed onto the three more specifically in a moment. And you'll notice this like circles rippling out from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And then Jesus and the 11 minus Judas enter the garden of Gethsemane, sit here while I pray. And then he takes the next three a little bit further, what Luke calls a stone's throw farther into the center of the garden. They had left the city with all its hustle and bustle, right? And then those eight are left remaining at the entrance to the, to the garden. And then Jesus goes this little farther with the three disciples of his inner circle, Peter and James and John. And it's with these that Mark paints a picture of the level of pain in anguish and fear that gripped Jesus in a single sentence. Mark says it this way, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That is Mark's narration. Now listen to Jesus' words. And you know how it is with a good friend when you can be completely honest and say, right now, I am sick to my stomach I'm scared to death. I don't want to know what to do. I'm paralyzed with action. I feel completely like I've been gutted. That is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter and James and John. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And in Luke's account, the drama is even more telling. There's a ministering angel, and there's sweat falling from our Savior's brow like blood drops splattering the ground in Gethsemane as he's wrestling with this overwhelming weight of his distress, his trouble, and his sorrow for us. And Luke records the scene of our Savior's passion. This is from Luke 22. 43 through 44, he says this, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's the old Scotsman, Hugh Martin, who tells us of the question so necessary that it's really come, it comes begging to us for an answer. Let me read from him for us. Mr. Martin says, and what it must be asked was the cause of the tormenting sorrow and amazement which now so greatly weakened and agitated the Son of God. That's a question. And he says, it is a solemn question, worthy of long and reverent consideration. But doubtless his sorrow arose from the source that his prayer was concerned with, the vivid view and the near approach of that cup which the Father was just giving him to drink, that curse of God from which he came to redeem his elect people, that sword of the Lord's wrath and vengeance which he had predicted, the penal desertion on the cross, the withdrawal of all comfortable view, views and influences, and the present consciousness of the anger of God against him as the surety substitute, a person laden with iniquities, these were the elements mingled in the cup of trembling which was now put in his hands and the prospect, Martin says, caused him deadly sorrow. But now his prayer. 
so subtle but so vivid, so plain yet so descriptive, so simple but so complex, so small, but a literal mountain of meaning. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It was an hour that our Lord would gladly have passed, let pass by, for he prayed, Mark writes, right there in verse 35, he prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. I want you to see with me now four elements of our Lord's prayer there in verse 36. First, I want us to see that he had trust in his Father's love and affection. Abba, Father, he says. Abba was just daddy or dado in Aramaic. And you only find this form of address two other times in the Bible. Romans 8, 15 and Galatians 4, 6. Always joined to and followed by Father. And always as the Spirit produced response to our relationship to God as Father, particularly in adoption or by adoption. So Jesus here in agony on his knees with the three even beyond that all right at this point he's left the three behind him further in to the center of the garden yet he's confident of his father's love this is the starting point of his supplication it expresses the eternal love and union between the father and the son but secondly he had this unreserved trust in his father's ability to do anything, as the catechism says, in answer to the question, you know, basically, what can God do? Can God do all things? God can do all his holy will. And so there's that second phrase, all things are possible for you. You might remember when Jesus explained to the disciples why God can even save rich men. Though he allowed, it was more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for one rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But here was his reasoning to the disciples in Matthew 19, 26. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And now at the most critical hour and moment of human history, our Lord is endowed and gifted and anchored with two assurances on the precipice of his request. Here it is. He was confident of his Father's love. He was equally confident of the sovereign power and ability of his Father over all things who rules in creation, in providence, and redemption. And now the third phrase, and it speaks of desire, of a longing. And by its very form, it reveals the humanity of our Lord Jesus. It's like a granddaughter asking, may I have a cup of water? And he simply says, remove this cup from me. There is the humanity of our Lord Jesus, he like you and me, he had a human soul and it now rises to the surface in its most simple of expressions. I don't want in effect 
to take this cup. That's what he's saying. If there's any other option. And Jesus here has the boldness to ask for what he truly wanted. But it reveals the second of his fears. First, yes, he feared the desertion of his disciples. But he also feared drinking the cup. Put yourself for a moment in his shoes. If there were any other alternative, he would take it by which he could have atoned for the sins of of his sheep. And when you see those two words, if possible, look, look with me there. If possible, right? If it were possible, verse 35, you might ask, is Jesus simply wanting to have the hour pass by so he would not have to drink the cup, or is he hoping for the accomplishment of atonement in any other possible manner than his drinking? It's hard to discern, but there it is. Remove this cup from me. And at the end, our Lord's prayer here is very telling. He was so confident of his Father's love and affection that he'd say, Abba, Father. He, it was who never wavered as to his Father's ability to do all things. He said, all things are possible for you. He who boldly asked that the Father, that, or that the hour would pass, so that the cup of God's wrath would not get near to his lips, and he said, remove this cup from me, yet he relents. And there's, in this moment, this beautiful, selfless expression to his Father. He's mindful, even as Pastor Jamie got to the finish line this morning in Hebrews 13, with that benediction about the blood of the eternal covenant. It was the Son of God, mindful of the eternal covenant of redemption, which he would seal with his own blood. And so he yields. He yields in gracious submission to his Father's will, that eternal plan and purpose of the Father to rescue a people for himself at the cost of, of his own life. And so there it is. Yet not what I want, but what you will. Or yet not what I will, but what you will. And that, brothers and sisters, is the prayer of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his agony. Thanks to the Father, to our Father, the answer was that the Son yielded himself to the Father's will. This prayer was answered, and it was answered in our favor, if you will. He would go on to take the cup. He would go on to press it to his lips, and as R.C. Sproul says, he would drink all the dregs of the wrath of God for, riches, for wretches like me and you and John Newton, who wrote... Amazing grace that we would know something of a rescue by it. I want us to see further from verses 37 through 42. Not only does Jesus here foretell, not only does Jesus pray, but he instructs. He instructs his disciples. 
we might recognize that the lessons we receive in the most critical moments of life count as the most critical lessons. And that lesson's particularly true for the men of the inner circle, for Peter and James and John. Maybe more narrowly, you might see, for Peter. So confident was Peter that he could assert that though all would fall away, he would not. And predictions be cast aside, there was no way the bold fisherman turned disciple would, would deny his Lord once, much less three times. He was certain of it. He lacked, like so many of us, a healthy self-awareness. He would never fall away, he thought. He would never deny his Lord, he asserted. But he could not or would not watch and pray for one hour of his Lord's passion. And this was the antidote, though. This was the prescription against his potential scandalizing for falling away is simply a form of that word scandal and denying the Lord he loved so much. But Jesus found him sleeping. Verse 37, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this was the lesson for the disciples for Peter, for the disciples, the instruction from the master, and for us as well. Watch and pray, says our Lord in his passion, that you may not enter into temptation. And there's a sense, those of us that are oriented to day-by-day faithful execution, prosecution, diligence of not procrastinating, this is different. The hand to the plow kind of gives way here and is amended to eyes up in alertness, our knees, on our knees in this humble, dependent prayer. Many of you know Solomon's words in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And Paul picks this theme up in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, when he's speaking about the armor of God, and he brings both prayer and watchful alertness Together, listen to me as I read Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. He speaks of praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, he says. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I only want to speak very briefly on this final scene, the betrayal of and the rest of our Lord Jesus. Pastor Scott will finish up the rest of this chapter next Sunday night, Lord willing, on the third. And we thought we ought to focus here in this series on our Lord Jesus' prayer in the night of his passion. But I want us to see in these final eight verses something of this fulfillment of Psalm 41 in verse nine. You might know that David, when he penned this psalm, and it says, even my close friend, 
Psalm 41.9, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And they find fulfillment. Here you see the betrayal in verses 43 through 45. You'll notice how sad this is. Judas is in the front. Yeah. And still Mark has preserved for him Notice the irony. He's still called one of the 12. And he brings with him this crowd. And here's the fulfillment of the three times the Lord Jesus has said three times. And where Mark tells us in Mark 8 and 9 and 10, Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection that the Son of Man would suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. And then chapter 9 Verses 30 through 32, he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. There, Jesus' own words are fulfilled here in Mark 14. They will kill him, and when he's killed, after three days, he will rise again. And then in chapter 10, again, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Imagine Judas is walking along with the Lord Jesus, one of the 12, and, there, and he's hearing these words, and here he is the one that fulfills this prophetic word of betrayal. Notice the arrest. It says, you can see in verses 46 and 47, look at this picture the Son of God is being approached, and here comes Judas to kiss him, to signal to the others that this is the one. He uses this honorific of rabbi, and he kisses him. He comes up to him as though all that, the rabbi, and giving him a kiss, being the first one to greet, he's communicating honor, but in fact is betraying the Son of God and the Son of Man. But look at the surprise of our Lord Jesus. You can see before that, one of the disciples takes a sword and cuts off the ear of, this, of a servant here. We know from the Gospel of Luke that the Lord Jesus touches the ear and he heals it. You can see that just, if you'll turn for a moment, he says, no, you don't need to be doing that, right? There's no need. He says, no more of this. Luke 22 and verse 51, it says, he touched his ear, and he healed him. In, Matthew, in, in, uh, in Matthew's account, Jesus gives this word, if we live by the sword, we will die by the sword. But notice our Lord Jesus in verse 48 in his surprise. He says, wait a minute. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Is this really your assessment of me? And he's asking, in effect, when he says, verse 49, when he makes a statement, he's asking the question, wasn't it I who day after day was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled? I want you to hear Octavius Winslow speak of our innocent Lord Jesus in this moment, and then I'll have three applications for us. Winslow said this, 
of this scene. He had committed no wrong, had done no violence, had sought no concealment, had attempted no escape, and yet the betrayer hunted him as a fugitive from justice and arrested him as a criminal fit only to die. There was a degree of dishonor and degradation attached to the mode of his apprehension. By the way, kids, when you hear the word degradation, that just means to get dirty. It means to mess something up and to bring it really, really low. There was a degree of dishonor and degradation attached to the mode of his apprehension from which his native dignity and conscious innocence and human sensitiveness to shame instinctively and painfully recoiled. He was upright and would not be arraigned as a felon. He was innocent and would not be prejudged as guilty. He was willing to die, the just for the unjust, expiating, that means taking away the sin, by a voluntary offering of himself to divine justice, the sins of his people. But there shall be no physical force, no human impeachment of his sanctity, no act in the mode of his arrest, which by implication should incriminate his conduct, shade his holiness, or brand him in the eyes of men as a sinner and a culprit. And he finishes by saying of the Lord Jesus in this moment, he had a character to maintain, a mission to perform which demanded an integrity and uprightness which should stand out before the world unimpeached and unimpeachable at an infinite remove, that is distance, even from the appearance of evil. Three applications, and we'll be done. As we consider our Lord Jesus and his agony in Gethsemane, his prayer, his betrayal, and his arrest. Number one, a caution to all of us who boast too lightly. Remember humility in asserting your loyalty to Christ. Be warned by Peter's clear case of overconfidence. In fact, the disciples too all thought it was impossible for them to fall away. And be sobered by Judas' apostasy and betrayal. He was no doubt there. In those instances where Mark is speaking of Jesus telling the disciples of what is to come, for the Son of God. He was there. And I think it's very likely that he had no idea the ends to which he would go for 30 pieces of silver to betray his master. We must be sobered by Judas' apostasy and betrayal. He sounded so very spiritual when he rebuked Mary for breaking the expensive flask of nard over that most beautiful of heads as though... Feeding the poor in that moment was of greater value than anointing the son, pre-anointing the son for his death. But he was not. He was not so very spiritual, this Judas. 
Remember that our perseverance, yours and mine, is always linked with a solid line to God's persevering grace, always. Are you not falling away at this hour? Are you not at this moment denying him? Then he has you in his grip. As Paul quoted to this author, Epimenides of Crete, on Mars Hill, he said, in him we live and move and we have our being. And so it is with our perseverance and joy and steadfastness in Christ. You remain because he remains. You are faithful only because he is faithful. You hold fast because he has held you fast. There's a second application. Beware the danger of apostasy and being one who falls away and never recovers as an apostate. And kids, let me, there's a verse that I love from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. I think it's really possible that uh, Pastor John MacArthur in preaching on this verse has been the instrument of many men, women, and children coming to faith in Christ. And Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so as we think of this danger of falling away, the word is not watch only, and neither is it only pray, but is the two together to watch and pray that you may, Jesus says, not enter into temptation. Remember those of you who like to solo it alone, there's safety in numbers, right? Like never hike alone. There are certain things you just don't do alone. Well, neither should we live this Christian life alone. Paul David Tripp's this sanctification is a community project. And so we do this corporately and together, not simply individually. When one is suffering painfully, when another is tempted sorely, when yet another is in the midst of severe trial that has no apparent end, we come beside them and we watch with them. We link arms and we pray together. And we do this practical ways today, this week, we can do that with Jill Benson, with Blake and, and, and Tia Lawson, with others who are in pain, who are in the midst of trial, temptation, even conflict. We want to remember that as Alexander Bruce once said, the church is viewed as a commonwealth, like the commonwealth of the state of Pennsylvania or the state of Virginia. And this is the idea of a commonwealth. The concern of one is viewed as the concern of all and, the, and vice versa, so that the concern of all is the view of one. There's a final application. I want you to think about these. I'm going to give them just... Highlight this for a second. Remember humility in asserting your loyalty to Christ. Your perseverance is God's preserving you. Second, beware the danger of apostasy and being one who falls away. God help us as a church to make it part of the culture of our community that we are willing to humbly go and say, brother, sister, can we talk about this? And then we say, out of a sense of real humility, 
please, I want to hear it. If you have a concern, I want to hear it. And we learn to have, as part of the culture of our body, that bringing, bringing our concerns in a way that's sweet and appropriate and timely and humble and self-aware, but nonetheless, we do it. Finally, fight to find joy in the reality of Christ's faithfulness to his mission to die for us as our sin offering. Never forget, this was the son who prayed, yes, Abba, Father, you're able to do all things. Let this cup pass from me. But the prayer ends with these words. Yet not what I will, but what you will. His faithfulness, not our own, is always designed as the source of our joy and comfort. We don't need to always be presenting to God and others our CV, our resume of our own accomplishments and faithfulness in light of God's. It's nothing. It's nothing. His faithfulness, not our own, is our joy and comfort. And so, in effect, let's constantly recall his faithfulness. The idea of remembering is the whole, the whole Old Testament summed up in word, remember, 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 recall, recount his faithfulness to accomplish everything for you. The one who elected you from before time began is the one who will bring you to perfect completion in Christ Jesus. Weave as an element of your spiritual different discipline. Weave this remembrance of all the work of God on our behalf, of, of, of a triune God, the Father who elects, the Son who redeems, and the Spirit who quickens and applies all the benefits of redemption. Weave those into your life as a daily spiritual discipline. He was in agony in Gethsemane, but he, in love for you, yielded to his Father's will, yet not what I will, but your will be done.